Well, thank you, Jenna. I think sometimes when folks volunteer or are asked to read, they should ask, how many verses will I have to read before saying yes? I was just walking out to grab a drink, which I left right there. I'm going to go get it. Sorry to you at home. Don't worry. I'm still here. I'm just not on your screen. And Jenna was out there practicing, and we were looking, and I said, you didn't quite know you were going to read this much, did you? <laughs> no, not exactly, but willing she was. The reason I asked Jenna to read and Judy to read uh, the portion from 1 Kings is because what we're reading in, in chapter 13, in some ways, if we were talking about what we've looked at these last two weeks and some of the differing perspectives that people can bring in, and to sum them up, they can be known as a preterist perspective or a futurist perspective. If you don't really like that word preterism because we never use it in any other context except for this, it just means that we're looking at largely this passage talking about the past. Or we read it and we're talking about the future. If you'd like to know more about that, well, good thing is there's this church nearby who spent the last two weeks looking at this passage. You could look at what they said. I thought the preaching was particularly good, and so you could just reference that. Now, this is where we've been, right? And we did recognize that the context of this passage is the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. For us, it's not really a big deal. If we were to just say, Mark 13 doesn't exist in the book of Mark, we just realized, as we're going to find when we come to the end of Mark, that there are questions about what really ought to be included in a gospel. There's, if you skip to the end in your Bible, in Mark, you'll see there's a portion that is there that feels like a little bit more of a satisfying ending, but it probably isn't original. As things were copied over time, it seems like somebody added that in because as they found older copies, those older copies don't have that end. So we'll be preaching up to what we think is the end of it. Um, but if we were to say, hey, guess what? Mark 13 is just like that end of the book. It just doesn't exist at all, and it doesn't really matter. We don't really need the Olivet Discourse. Turns out that was an invention. On one hand, you might be tempted to think, oh, whew, well, at least we get rid of all that controversy, and we can just go straight to chapter 14 where Jesus is anointed. Won't that be a great text? Yes, it will, and we'll enjoy looking at that next week. But I want you to know, I, I don't think that would be good. Because I think, as R.C. Sproul's pointed out, this is one of the most profound moments of Jesus as a prophet that we see in the New Testament. But to say to you and to me that the temple was taken away probably doesn't seem like that big a deal. It would be like if you were to be reading a story of something that went on in a different country. And it sounds like it's a big deal to them, but is it a big deal to us? No, because our world doesn't revolve around it. We are a long way away from the destruction of the temple, right? There's not really any sense that this impacts our day-by-day -day kind of life. But had 9-11 been as successful as it was clearly intended to be, had the White House actually been hit, had every target in D.C. been taken out, we would have had a devastating day. That devastation of a day would probably be close to, but not even touching what the Jews experienced whenever the temple was removed from not just them, not just the city, but the national psyche. The Jews were the people 
that had the location where God came to the earth. They were the ones, the guardians of the presence of God. And before we dive back into Mark 13, it's probably good for us to just think, and so if we can take a moment and just think for a question, for a minute, about how you evaluate a church service. There's a lot of ways of evaluating a church service, right? How'd the music go? How hot was it in the sanctuary? Um, you know, what was the preaching like? Did I like this? Did I like that? Those are a bunch of different ways. But at the heart of what we really, if we're honest, or trying to assess about any one of our services or any church that's in the area is when you go, how do you know that you've met with God? Now, different churches answer that differently. But the reason that that's a great question to ask of, of a church is because that's the question people have been asking forever. People have been wondering, we know there's something more. There's more than just this physical, temporal world that we're a part of. There's more than just the flesh and bloodness of life. There's something else there. How do we connect to it? Answers abound, obviously. But in the Bible, if we think about the question of the presence of God and how do we know that we have encountered the presence of God, we have to really start in the Garden of Eden, don't you? Garden of Eden is probably the closest thing, so it would seem, to the spot where heaven and earth kind of come together, if you had them as sort of a, a Venn diagram. A spiritual realm of God's existence and an earthly realm of, of created existence. Where do the two of them overlap? In the very beginning, it seems to be this garden, doesn't it? Everything's ideal. God's walking like he's a being. He can be heard in the garden. There's something of an anticipated fellowship that when you're reading it, there's certain just a longing that's there. Everything seems to be nice. There's no problems. There's work, but it's, it's a pleasant work, an uninterrupted, an uncursed work. But nobody can get back to the garden because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Locked away from the presence of God, locked out into a harsh wilderness, away from the pleasant created order that God's presence brings to this world, Adam and Eve, because of their rebellion, are now not able to get back because there's a sword guarding the way, and instead their lives are filled with relational pain. The, the very fact that life is supposed to be brought into this world is now a painful experience. The work that we're supposed to do in having dominion over this world is a painful experience. Childbearing is, is painful. Thorns are painful. We're not in Eden anymore. What are you supposed to do? How do we get back to God? Story of the Bible. And if you've ever had a moment where you felt like some connection I had with God is broken? Or if you're even in that season right now, you know an echo of the cry that Scripture's trying to answer. How do people get back to God? The beginning of Genesis, you've got a tower that's being built that's sort of a moment of somebody trying to kind of create another mountaintop experience. They're going to ascend to the heavens, but they're going to do it by themselves. That, that doesn't work very well. 
All throughout Genesis, you see people building altars that have some sort of a, a sense that God's going to meet with. And as, as uh, Abraham and his family is chosen, there are moments where God seems to come down. The clearest one is Jacob, right? We hear of Jacob's ladder, probably not a ladder, probably something like the Tower of Babel, in fact, a staircase going up to heaven where God seems to be descending. There's communication, but most of the time, that's not people's experience. Most of the time, God is distant or silent. Promises come. Abraham waits a long time. The children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of his promise, wait a long time. They then, going all the way out of the promised land that God's going to give to them, in Egypt, wait an incredibly long time. 400 years with what seems to be nothing but their faithfulness to God and no sense of, is God going to be faithful to us? Well, in the meantime, he's taken them from a tiny little group of people to a huge nation nation, but a beaten down nation, a nation that needs to come and find God. And so God comes and he intervenes. He brings them back to the land of promise. And in the way, he first meets them at this mountain, Mount Sinai. And there they recognize this God we want to be in a relationship with. He's nothing like the gods we saw in Egypt. He's nothing like the idols, but because he's so scary and because his scariness seems destructive to us, they realize, man, idolatry was way safer than actually meeting this God. The God of Sinai is way more dangerous than the gods of Egypt. In fact, they seem to prefer the familiarity of being slaves with tame gods than of being free with the God. And yet that's still what they're made for. Even after the rebellion at Sinai, Moses declares, God, if you're going to send us from here to the promised land, if we're going to go back to the land of our ancestors so we can be back where you want us to be again, our little echo of Eden, if you're going to get us back there again, but you're not going with us, then Eden won't be Eden. The promised land won't be the promised land because I don't care how much milk, how much honey is there. If you're not there, it's not what we want. Moses cries out to God and begs for it. And so in the wilderness, though, God makes a way for the people to be with them. It's the tabernacle. He's not going to move the mountain. He could have if he wanted to. Faith can do that today, but he didn't do that. Instead, he brought the significance of the mountain with the people. And so that every time the Ark of the, of the Covenant would come out of the tabernacle, the people would realize, oh, it's, it's time for us to go. It's time for our rest to end because we follow the presence of God. That's where life is. That's where direction is. That's where hope is. And so if the Ark of the Covenant is going to move, then that's where we're going to go. And so the priest would take up the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God. They'd move it. And whenever the Ark of the Covenant would stop, then the whole house around the God's presence needed to be set up. The Ark, outside of the Ark and the Holy of Holies, the next sort of foyer to that room, the holy place, where we had a representation of who Israel is in the table of the bread of the presence, a representation of their prayers going up to God in the, ark of, or the altar of incense, a representation of the glory of God in the candle, the lampstand that's there. And so you've got the people, their prayers, God's glory. There's a representation of it. But none of Israelites can really see that unless you're a priest. And only the priest at the right time, that's all hidden. It's inside a tent 
covered, 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 covered. Why? Because God's with you, but God is scary. You can't come to God. Where do the people get to go? The front yard. The outer courtyard. You don't even get to see any of this stuff made out of gold. You're just there for the outdoor pieces of furniture. That's what you bring to the table. You bring your sin. Even the priests bring so much sin, they have to have a giant sink to wash themselves all the time. And when you enter into that space, you bring a substitute to pay for your sin. That animal slaughtered, the slaughter going on so frequently, that's God's house. That's God's presence. And all through the wilderness, this is the way you met with God. The problem is there was also another way that people sort of knew God. And that was through his ambassadors, sometimes his prophets. Sometimes if you wander out a little bit from the time where they actually get in, it's Moses in the beginning, sort of as the spokesperson of God, but also as the kind of king-like figure, right? Moses dies, Joshua takes up the mantle, and Joshua's the one who takes them from the wilderness into the land, but it's still the tabernacle. The priests are still setting that up. Shiloh's one base. Later on, the base moves. The people are in the promised land, but things aren't quite right. And so even after a whole series of time where we recognize the people might have a tabernacle, but they're not really following God. In fact, you read the whole book of Judges. What do we read? Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. Can you do what's right in your own eyes and still go and sacrifice at the temple and have everything be fine? The prophets will tell us later on, not at all. God doesn't care a lick about those sacrifices. He wants people coming in humility to his presence, and he wants them living their day-by-day nature of their lives and nature of the country under the reign of God. And so Samuel kind of leads them. Saul, for a while, certainly doesn't lead them. Then David does. We get this one leader over Israel. What does David want to do? After he gets himself set up and brings all the tribes together and sort of creates a, a union between what seems to be this fragmented sense of all these disparate states, he brings them all together and says, I'm setting up my reign and having established peace in this country, we're going to bring God into the same city. This is a big deal. It's a scary deal. People die in the process of trying to get God to the city. But when it finally happens, David is dancing with such abandon and such just complete bliss that when you read it, you're like, David, you're a king, but you're not a very dignified king right now. In fact, there's this whole argument with his wife because he's dressed almost in the the undergarments of a priest dancing out there. You've got One who's like bringing together tabernacle life and palace life together. And after having done that, he says, it's time for me to build a temple. And the prophet thinks it's such a good idea. Of course you're going to make a temple. Of course God's going to have a permanent house, just like you've got a permanent house. Go do this. And then God meets that prophet that night and says, are you sure you know what your job is? You're not an advisor. You're a mouthpiece of God. Didn't you want to check with me to see if this is a good idea before you told him it was a good idea? It's a bad idea. It's not going to be David. David wants to build me a house. No, no, no. 
I'm going to build David a house. Did you hear that echo in what Judy read? The beginning of the house that God was going to build for David had to do with his line, his sons, and the fact that there would always be a son on the throne who would be related to David. Not like all the other kingdoms around where one dynasty kills off another dynasty. Not like what was going on back in Egypt, which is why we had a pharaoh who arose who didn't know anything about Joseph. Why? Because one king, one family killed off the other family. But in David's world, there would always be a descendant of his ruling over his people. David wants to build God a house, and God says, now I'm going to build you a house. But I'll take a temple too. It's just not going to be your work. You've got bloody hands. So your son Solomon's going to bring that temple in. You see what happens when Solomon builds the temple now? The longing for the reign of God and the presence of God to be united has finally happened. It's almost as though in the temple being built on the same hill as the palace that finally Eden is coming back to the earth again. This is what people were made for. To live under God's reign and to be in God's presence. Isn't that Edenic? That's what the temple is all supposed to be. That's what Zion is supposed to be. How are we supposed to get to be near God? It's not going to be in wandering anymore. It's going to be that we have this home, and here the reign of God and the presence of God are brought together in the mercy of God. That's what the temple was going to represent. And for a brief moment, they had it in Solomon. And then Solomon got married to all these women, and then all these idols came in, and idolatry just plagues the nation. What David united of a fractured nation gets refractured again. The northern relatives of, of the nation of Israel, they're just given over to idolatry. And so their fake temple, their fake palaces, those things are destroyed utterly. But even God's people that remained kind of faithful to David, who lived in Jerusalem, who still had the temple, man, they struggled as well. Could God really live with his people if they were going to be so disrespectful to his presence? And the ultimate answer is no. One of the most devastating scenes in all of prophetic history comes in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel witnesses in a vision the presence of God picked up out of the temple and left. Why? Because God will not be defeated, but his people will. And so God has left the city desolate and ready for attack. And in 586 it is. 600 years before Jesus really starts his ministry, the city of Jerusalem is devastated by the Babylonians. The temple is defiled, so much so that anyone who was carted away from Jerusalem and went off into exile had absolutely no hope. You almost could have called it the end of the world because if the beginning of the world was Eden, then the end of the world would have been this moment when the, when the temple is destroyed again. Seventy years later, what happens? Their time of punishment is over. And the prophets start speaking again. Jeremiah had said it would be 70 years away. Daniel started hearing about the fact that it was going to be 70 years of exile. And so he's like, this is going to be great. And he starts praying and God's like, well, 70, you know, times seven. 
It's actually going to be 490 years before this really comes about. But yes, I'm going to start bringing my people back. He starts bringing his people back. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, the walls are rebuilt and the temple's rebuilt. And yet there's a few who see this new temple and they're kind of sad because they remember the old temple. And this new temple is nothing like it. The old temple was full of magnificent glory, great big stones, lots of gold, lots of splendor. The new one is functional, but it's more of a tabernacle than a temple, really. It's a building, and it works. But one of the prophets comes in and speaks to the people who are sad, and he says, I know this one doesn't look like the old one. I know it doesn't look as impressive as it was going to be. But trust me. A day will come when it will get more glory than the other one ever did. Which is strange to hear. And over time, there are more rebellions. And by the time the Romans arrive, this is what we begin talking about, right? The temple that Jesus arrives in, the temple of Mark 13, it's not Zerubbabel's temple, but it's Zerubbabel's temple with a kick. And that kick came from Herod. Herod was a Roman ruler, but he was Jewish in in origin, or at least sort of Jewish in origin. But more so, he was also very impressed with himself, and so he made the temple even bigger than Solomon's temple. Would that, that be the moment that the prophet was talking about? Where more glory would come? It seems like that's what the disciples thought. Listen again to the beginning of Mark 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Pause. What might you expect Jesus to say at that moment? Behold, the fulfillment of the long-lost prophecy. Will there be greater glory than of Solomon's day? Yes. Why? Because of the stones, because of the gold, because of the size of it. But Jesus had just come in and completely cursed the temple. He had just walked into the building and said, you're supposed to be a house of prayer. You're a den of thieves. And he'd essentially cast judgment over the temple. And when they came to him and said, by what authority do you do this? He said, if you knock down this temple, it'll get rebuilt in three days. So the glory that the buildings had been awaiting was not coming from Herod. It was coming from Jesus. Jesus was the one who was finally bringing the fulfillment of David and the presence of God into the place where God's people were supposed to hear God's word, experience God's presence, and be under God's reign. The king was walking in as the prophet and the priest to his city. He was coming to his city. He was coming to his temple. And what did the temple do? It shut the doors on him. All that we saw in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 was the religious leaders coming to Jesus and saying, what do you think you are doing? And so Jesus says, there will not be here 
one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? If you're reading in Luke or in Matthew, you hear the addition of the phrase and of the end of the age. Mark doesn't include that. So far, we've asked the question, what would we hear and what would we see that would be the front runners of what was going to happen in Jerusalem? That's been the bulk of the context. And we tried to read this as naturally as possible. Last week in particular, we looked and asked the question, what would be the most natural ways of reading this? But there's something we missed. And it's in the significance of what would be lost. That's why I've tried to talk to you about this for a while now. This is a story you know, but I wanted you to hear it again to understand what the temple meant. Spurgeon, Matt gave me this quote a couple weeks ago, and he's like, are you ever going to use it? I'm like, I will, I will, brother. Here it comes. This is a, uh, a four-slide quote, though. No, actually, it's a six-slide quote. So here you go. Commenting on the phrase, for there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. He says, read the record, record written by Josephus of the destruction of Jerusalem and see how truly our Lord's words were fulfilled. The Jews impiously said concerning the death of Christ, his blood be on us and on our children. And never did any other people invoke such an awful curse upon themselves. And upon no other nation did such a judgment ever fall. We read of Jews crucified till there was no more wood for making crosses. Of thousands of the people slaying one another in their fierce faction fights within the city. Of so many of them being sold for slaves that they became a drug in the market and all but valueless. And of the fearful carnage when the Romans at length entered the doomed capital and the blood-curdling story exactly bears out the Savior's statement utterly or uttered nearly 40 years before the terrible events occurred. Truly, the blood of the martyrs slain in Jerusalem was amply avenged when the whole city became a veritable field of blood. It was before that generation had passed away that Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed. There was a sufficient interval for the full proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and evangelists of those early Christian church and for the gathering, of those, uh, sorry, the gathering out of those who recognized the crucified Christ as their true Messiah. Then came the awful end, which the Savior foresaw and foretold, and the prospect of which wrung from his lips and heart the sorrowful lament that followed his prophecy of the doom awaiting his guilty capital. Nothing remained for the king but to pronounce the solemn sentence of death upon those who would, not have, who would not come unto him that they might have life. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The whole house of the Jews was left desolate when Jesus departed from them. And the temple, the holy and beautiful house, became a spiritual desolation when Christ finally left. Jerusalem was too far gone to be rescued from its self-sought doom. Well, Spurgeon's right. 
which is usually what you want to say whenever you quoted Spurgeon after especially six slides. I don't agree with any of this. But more than just being right, he's descriptive. The devastation that was brought on the city, that was brought on the temple, was also brought on the people. Sam Storms, who, if you followed any of the links that I put in the email last week, and just we'll just put those back in as well so that you guys can do a little bit more reading on this if you want to. Um, Sam Storms calls this the inauguration of something that has not had its consummation. In other words, what he's looking at, and Storms is looking primarily at Matthew 24 and 25, but what he's looking at at Mark 13 is Jesus describing an event that would be devastating in their day while also pointing ahead and saying, this is the inauguration of something that points of a greater devastation still to come. As we looked last week, there are New Testament texts that don't seem to be fulfilled in this moment. And though we accented that in some ways last week, I wanted to accent what was fulfilled in this moment. And here's why I think it matters for us. Because verses 32 through 37, which we're going to look at here, they have a lot of what Jesus is saying to these folks in this day. But I'm not sure that we're ever going to lose anything that's going to feel like as great a loss as what the Jews lost in AD 70. I'm not sure we will suffer personally as much as the Jews suffered at this point in their history. And so if what Jesus tells to them about what was about to happen in their day would motivate them, be true for them. In other words, if they could be true to what Jesus was going to say in such devastation to come, then cannot we learn the same lessons in the suffering and the future that we await? I think we can. And that's the way I'm approaching the rest of this. We're going to look at what God is saying to his people then to understand what God is saying to us now. That's where we begin in verse 32, and we see that the first thing that Jesus wants to communicate to them answers the first question that you would think. When Jesus says, not one of these stones is going to be standing on top of another one, their question is, when? (laughs) When? If, If this would happen, when and how? What will I see? What will I hear? Tell me, when will I know that this is about to take place? And the first thing that Jesus tells them to wrap up this teaching is, stop guessing about the timing. This would be the spot in a sermon where I should quote a whole lot of people who have done this. I just find that to be discouraging. These are people in our family. I'm not particularly proud of this family trait in Christendom. The fact that many have predicted when Jesus would return and brought others with them is a trait we really don't want to emulate in this family. We also don't want to mock it. Because as I said the first week, I get the impulse. It's the impulse of the disciples here, and it's the impulse of the sanctified saints in heaven waiting for God to avenge their blood and asking how long. I know that I've talked with some of you that were part of our church, our church's movement, particularly charismatic energy of the 70s and the 80s. It's not a history that I share But I know that one of the things that was great about that time is that there was an anticipation for Jesus to come. 
Those that I've talked to would say it was probably a little bit of a naive anticipation. It might have violated this first principle a little bit, but there was at least the longing for Christ to come. And if you've been with us for the first two parts of this sermon and you'd say, boy, you know, that's something I don't have, then I want to offer you a book. I got three of them. I'm going to keep one. I've already given one away to someone who was asking this very question. When exactly, or what am I supposed to be doing while I'm waiting for Christ's return? I'm not sure that I long quite as much. And in the, uh, you know, I probably gave a little bit of time to R.C. Sproul. Disproportionately, I'm going to give some attention to John Piper, our futurist of the group. There's a new book that he's come out with. We've got a few. This is yours for the keeping or yours for the reading and the borrowing. We'll buy some more. Um, but this is going to be out in the foyer after the service. First one who gets it, congratulations. If you read it, come back and do a book report. I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. But if you long a little bit more, this is subtitled Meditations on the Second Coming of Christ. It's titled Come Lord Jesus. And I think it... Um, answers the reason why we would want to guess about when the Lord would return. But Jesus says clearly, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And that does sort of raise a couple of theological questions, right? How could Jesus be God and not know something? It's a, it's a good question. We are the first to have asked that. J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, says the question has often been raised, how can the Lord Jesus be ignorant of anything since he is very God? I love his answer. The answer to these questions is to be found in our deep ignorance. Our deep ignorance, he says, of the great mystery of the union of two natures in one person. So he's asking, how can Jesus be ignorant? And Ryle says, let's just start with this. You're ignorant. Can you fully explain what it means for Jesus to come, be recognized as God, and yet clearly be a person? Can you explain his parentage? Can you exactly explain how is a sin nature transferred over to everyone except for to Jesus? Not really. Lots have tried. No answers are really satisfactory. What does that leave us with? It leaves us with our, say it with me, deep ignorance. That's the answer. He says. Now, what he's referring to is Paul talked about in Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he goes on and talks about the way that having done that, he then makes his way to the humiliation of the cross and then to his glory. But the point we're accenting out of Philippians 2 is this sense that Jesus emptied himself in a way, still God, but without all the rights, without all the privileges, certainly without all the recognition, but more than that, in such a way that he could say, concerning that day, that time, that hour, the son does not know. What did that leave Paul to conclude for us? In other words, in Philippians 2, why was Paul saying this about Jesus? He was saying this, this comes right before verses 6 and 7. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and there's verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. In other words, Paul says, I would like you all to be humble. That humility will call you to serve each other. It'll call you to do amazing things among each other. But the example you need to reference in terms of what motivates your humility is not your past, not your weakness. It's Jesus' example. In other words, the example of Jesus in emptying himself should propel humility among the people that are following Jesus. And that's what Ryle's kind of calling for here a little bit, isn't it? How can we understand Jesus? Uh, humble yourself a little bit, knock yourself down, embrace your deep ignorance, and understand this. We don't fully get it. But what it should lead us to do in humility is, in Jesus' words, to stop guessing. Well, in my words, to sum up what Jesus is saying, is to stop guessing. I really do like J.C. Ryle on this. Let me, let me read to you a little bit more. He says, The meaning of this passage is one that has always perplexed the commentator, which is a great way of saying himself. The most common view, undoubtedly, is that it signifies the Roman armies who executed God's judgment on the Jewish nation. It may be questioned whether this interpretation completely fulfills the prophecy. I venture, though with much diffidence, to suggest that a more complete fulfillment and accomplishment yet remains to come. I desire to avoid dogmatizing on the topic. I only suggest it is a possible and probable thing. This guy was the bishop over churches. If anybody could look at people and say, this is what we believe, people. Bow down, bend the knee, listen to me and obey. He certainly had the authority. He was the one set up to oversee a whole mess of churches. And he walks into this text and says, it's perplexed me. I question whether this is completely fulfilling. It is with much diffidence, and I only suggest that it is possible and likely probable. I like the way he approached that. It seems to me we ought to bank on what's certain. We ought to define our unity around what's certain. And maybe we don't start with the apocalyptic, the things that we're most confident about. What is he doing in the way that he's even approaching this passage? He's saying, Jesus said, stop guessing. I'm going to stop guessing. I'm trying to understand what's going on. I'm approaching it with humility. Why? Because my Savior clearly came down and emptied himself to the point that he didn't know something. So as I'm following in his footsteps, I'm very comfortable saying, I don't fully know something. So just give up. Let's just pull 13 out of the Bible and forget it altogether. No, he also said this. There is a wide distinction to be drawn between dogmatical and positive assertions about dates and a humble prayerful searching into the good things yet to come. Against dogmatism about times and seasons, our Lord's words in this place are a standing caution. But as to the general profitability of studying prophecy, we can have no plainer authority than the Apostle Peter's words, which are, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. And the Apostle John's words, blessed is he that reads. So in other words, as we may not be able to come away from Mark 13 and say, will Jesus return in our generation? Which I have heard many times. Of course he will. It can't get worse than this. Mm, it's been worse than we've experienced it. 
The lack of a Christian majority in the United States of America is not a mandate up to heaven like, oh no, your lives are about to get uncomfortable. You're not going to be popular. Oh golly, let me get back so I can prevent you from a little bit of inconvenience. Things have been worse than we have it right now. Let's not take the next time that things are worse for us and say, well, we have to hold God to a date. Let's just be willing with humility. Humility demonstrated by J.C. Ryle, I think here, but also really initiated by Jesus. If he said, you know, when I'm teaching you this, I don't know. I feel a little bit more comfortable standing before you and saying, I'm trying to reconcile a couple of what I think are very reasonable ways of reading Scripture and to tell you fully, I'm not sure how all of this, you know, kind of rings out. But let's keep, keep wringing out the sponge and seeing what comes. First thing Jesus says is, let's just stop guessing about the date. But the second thing he says, though, is we need to stay active at work. We are to be on guard, to keep awake. Verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. We've heard this energy already, right, in Mark 13? Let me just remind you of a couple times. Jesus has already said this to us. He says in verse 9 to 11, be on your guard. Why? Because bad things are going to happen, but the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. How is that going to happen? He says later on, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven, which even if you take a past view or a future view, most see as being a representation of the fact that there are those who need to go spread the good news to wake up and to call the elect. What is he saying in this passage? He's saying the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's Paul saying? As we're waiting for whatever's coming, I want you to stop guessing. Yes, those are Jesus' words. But the second thing I want you to do is stay active. Do stuff. Look at the way Jesus says it in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. It may be tempting to say, well, if Jesus isn't going to tell me when he's coming back, well, I mean, I can't do anything. I need that kind of data in order to be responsible. And Jesus is like, no, you're to be like a servant who's been left in charge to do your work. Stay active at work. Well, what work did you want us to do? How about this? Well, the gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations so you could get busy doing that. How about this? I need to get the elect from the four winds gathered in. How about you do that? When Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 24, he tells two stories afterwards. The second one he tells is of this guy who leaves and he takes some of his money and he puts it in charge of some of his servants. Now, one guy gets one-tenth of what somebody else got. Another guy gets half of what the most, this other guy got. But Jesus looks and doesn't ask how much were you given, but what did you do? 
In fact, he says it this way. After a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. His servants in charge, verse 34, each with his or her work. When we think of the end times, what we cannot do is abandon our post. Abandon our role and say, well, if it's just going to get worse, we just need to retreat down and stop. No, the servant has been given a job by the master. He's been given resources for the job and he's to be faithful to do it. We do not have the biggest church, but let's have a faithful one. We don't have the clearest, most expansive, influential mission, but let's be faithful to it. You may look and you say, in my family, in my circle of friends, I don't know what to do. Do something. When I got a driveway poured back in Pennsylvania, the house that we had was... A, it used to be a duplex. We were trying to make it into a livable home. We were renting out part of it, but part of the back used to be this big parking lot. And uh, we really didn't want to raise our kids in a big parking lot, so we pushed some of the gravel together, and then a guy came by. I, I think it was a hoax, but, you know, I fell for it. He's like, hey, I'm in your area, and I have extra, con or not concrete, but um, macadam, right? I've got extra blacktop. And I'd be willing to do your driveway. And I was like, wow, if you've got extra and I've got a gravel driveway, this would be great. Come on by and do it. And so we did. I really don't want to talk about how it all held up and everything. But the one thing he did tell me turned out to be true. He said, if you want to ruin this driveway, then what I want you to do is keep the car in one spot and turn the wheel before you start backing up. Because what that'll do is it's going to grind the, the, uh, the blacktop down. Give me just a sec, sorry. I know you're very cautious. I'm very eager to see what's going to happen to my driveway. But he said, basically, if you want to ruin your, your driveway, then when you're going to pull out, you know, in the morning, make sure to turn the wheel before you start moving. Because what that'll do is that'll just move the wheels back and forth, and it'll just basically eat up the driveway at that spot. And it turned out to be true. We didn't always do what he was saying. But what he said to do instead is just start backing up a little bit. Start moving a little bit before you turn your wheels. And frankly, that's great advice for us. It seems like sometimes we can get so stuck just sitting in the driveway trying to figure out where we're going and all we're doing is turning the wheel this way, turning the wheel that way, turning the wheel this way. You're just grinding up the kingdom of God. Let's get moving. It's easier to steer a car when it's moving. It does less damage to everything around it when it's moving. We just need to be faithful, even if everything's not clear, to get moving, to stay active, and to use Jesus' words from thir verse 34, each with our work to do what we've been, in we've been called to do and what we're in charge of doing. Do you have friends? Yeah. Have you ever told them anything about Jesus? not get moving how exactly i don't know steer as you go but just start talking and then pray that i'll give you the words 
Does anybody at work know that you're a believer? If not, just tomorrow, ask them, hey, what'd you do on Sunday? What'd you do over the weekend? It might lead them to ask you what you did over the weekend. You could say, we talked about the end times, which, you know, maybe wait till next week. I don't know if you don't want to share this message with them, but there's so many ways. Just get the ball rolling, get the car moving, and then steer it as you go. This is taking too long. Fourth or third point starts in verse 35. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, and these are his last words from the Olivet Discourse, I say to all, stay awake. It's the same thing Jesus said right at the beginning of our other point, verse 33. Be on guard, stay awake. Awake. This is where military language enters in. It's the same language Habakkuk used when he was talking to God. Hey, God, I don't like the way that things are unfair in this world. Yeah, don't worry. I'm going to bring in some people who are more wicked than you to punish you for your wickedness. God, you can't do that. That would be even more unjust. You have to reward us in compensation for the at least a little bit of righteousness. So here we are, God. And he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me. What's he doing? In his indignation, which God will address, he's at least expectant. He's alert. He's awake. God, my people are wicked. Yeah, I'm going to punish them with more wicked people. That's not right. What about that? And he's waiting. He's alert and he's looking. That's Jesus' language here. This is military language of somebody who is a guard, right? We, he commands the doorkeeper, verse 34, to stay awake. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What puts us to sleep? It would seem, according to verse chapter 13, it's trouble. It's the stuff we don't want to have happen that discourages us and lulls us to sleep. But Jesus has said in, in chapter five or in, in verses five through eight, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Stay awake, not surprised. He says in verses nine through eleven, when they bring you on trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious. He says, verse 23 and, or 21 to 23, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Jesus, it's, it's so hard to wait for your return, to be active and to be vigilant now. There are people who really just aren't teaching what's true. Yeah, I told you about it. Stay on guard, stay alert. Yeah, but there's wars and there's rumors of wars. There's, there's disasters all around us. The world's just falling apart. Yeah, I know. Don't be alarmed. Stay awake. Well, and I'm becoming a little bit less popular in my friends, a little bit less popular at school. I'm starting to get persecuted a little bit. I mean, it's like people are calling me an account. It's like they hate me the way they hated you. Yeah, I told you that was going to happen. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. But more than that, I think what lulls us to sleep it's not so much that our lives are hard. It's that they're good. 
we're kind of doing fine without him, aren't we? And that's hard to admit. But I think we live that way. We're doing okay, Jesus. We're not really quite sure we need you back here yet. And to that, Jesus told a second parable. And let me end with this. So he says in verse or in chapter 25, after doing all this teaching with a little more detail in chapter four or 24 of Matthew, he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Then the foolish took their lamps. They took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. At midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I say that that parable relates to what Jesus says in Mark because he uses the exact same command at the end of it. And just like any parable, it's hard to know exactly what Jesus meant. But I can tell you what's true in my life. I've got time, and I like to bank some of it. I like to keep some back at home for myself. I don't like spending all my time in anticipation of Jesus returning because there's some things I'd just rather spend my time on that are a lot more comfortable. I've got my money. And I'm not sure I want to take all my money out there and wait for Jesus with it. I'd rather keep and bank some of it back at home. I'd rather just sort of take some of my dreams and not spend them all out on being ready and waiting for Jesus. I'd rather take some of my dreams and spend them back at home. I'd rather not plan my kids' lives and give them advice so that they are waiting and ready for Jesus and actively sold out for him to come. I'd rather say, you know what, this is a little bit better way of you spending out your life. I'd rather take and bank some of my kids, my time, my dreams, my money. I want to take some of my life and want to bank it rather than spending it all and saying, Jesus, I am ready for you. I am waiting for you and you get all my oil and if we're going to be a faithful church no matter our size we cannot do that we just cannot do that yes let's not worry about the time i don't know that that's our problem but if we're going to stay awake and if we're going to be at work then we can't be working for our dreams using our time using our money because that's all going to sit back at home and it's not going to help us be ready and eager for him to come what if we Spent this church waiting for Jesus to come. Not on our future, not on our dreams and our plans, but we just spend our energy for those and for the mission of his return. Usually a comedian does that after a good joke. <laughs> I think we're just going to use this as a timer.
of the fact that God said, your sermon's done. <laughs> so let me read to you 32 to 37 one more time. <coughs> but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, and I don't read us too much into this, but I think we're part of the all. You can hear the words from your master who will return one day and he tells you, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we are grateful for strength to listen to your word. We are grateful for energy to believe your word and to respond to your word. We are desperate. Would you help us? We are lulled to sleep by this world by our comfort and by the loss of them, by our popularity and by the loss of it. And Lord, we don't want to spend ourselves on anything but being faithful so that we could be ready to celebrate when you return. Not sad because we didn't get to do what we wanted. Lord, would you build us into that kind of people and let us spend ourselves and be spent on that mission. In Jesus' name, amen.